is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And our next story is about a comedian whose jokes came so fast that when you laughed at one, you probably were going to miss the next one. Here's Greg Hengler. Anybody can repeat a Rodney Dangerfield joke, but nobody could tell one like the man himself. That's because his humor was drawn from a life so hard that the only way to survive it was to laugh at it. And we all do. In fact, Rodney is one of the very few comedians whose act connects and appeals to every generation. This is his story. You know, people say to me, how did you get a name like Rodney Dangerfield? I'll tell you what happened. Hi. I saw your ad in the paper. I want to improve my personality. Good luck. What's your name? I'm Jack Roy. Jack Roy, you got two first names. Your name is your biggest problem. This is like a comeback for me in show business. I was in showbiz years ago and I quit. And even an idea how well I was doing at the time I quit. I was the only one who knew I quit. <laughs> What's the name? Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> Rodney Dangerfield? With a name like Rodney Dangerfield, you have to either be really funny or you have to be an idiot. And you were really funny as Rodney Dangerfield. If you look at his image and his material and the way he dressed, the way he conducted himself, the name Rodney Dangerfield just fit. Suppose I use the name, I don't like it. Can I bring it back? Okay, just do me one favor. While you're using the name, don't give it a bad name. This persona is what made this man special. What a crowd, what a crowd. Rodney was totally unique. He was a different kind of performer. There was never one like that before. And there's never been one like that since. He was funny. And he was every man. And Rodney Dangerfield, if he was anything else, was authentic. Rodney's jokes were all true. They were all based on his, his real perception of himself. I tell you, it's not easy being me. And this whole thing, it's not easy being me. It wasn't. He, he always felt someone was trying to take advantage of him. Tell you, can't get help today. More going to betray him or, you know, that he'd been somehow wronged. But, and that just was something from his childhood. He's so wronged by his parents that he can never overcome it. Tonight, I don't believe this is. Rodney Dangerfield, comedian, actor, the man who from coast to coast gets no respect. This is your life! Rodney Dangerfield was born Jacob Cohen on November 22, 1921 in Long Island, New York. He was the son of Jewish parents, vaudeville performer Phil and housewife Dorothy. Here's comedian Argus Hamilton, Rodney's second wife, Joan Dangerfield, and literary agent Chris Calhoun. Well, I told my old man, never took me to the zoo. He said, if they want you, they'll come and get you. He was born a really poor, rejected kid. His father, uh, who adopted the stage name Roy, was on a comedy team in vaudeville and always on the road. Rodney's dad was absent from his life, which was um, a real source of, of heartache for Rodney. His father saw him twice a year for about two 30-minute visits. What a childhood I had. My mother never breastfed me. She told me she liked me as a friend. <laughs> His mother, a beautiful Hungarian Jew, couldn't stand him. Didn't even tend him. Hardly even babysat him. He told me she never gave him a hug or a kiss or, or even a compliment. Last week I looked up my family tree. I found out I'm the sap. 
he was really left to just go play in the backyard and um, there'd be half a sandwich on the on the porch and he had to fend for himself. Even though his mother didn't show him much affection, it didn't stop him from being a, a loyal, devoted son. He worked at a newsstand before school, when he was in grade school, and he took every job he could get his hands on and, and was actually the breadwinner of the family. He was starved for affection, attention. He tried to do good things. He worked very hard to get good grades, and he presented his mother with a report card. She wouldn't even look at it. She just says, give me that sign, and she says, you know what you got to do. And, well, who are you trying to get good marks for if your mother don't want to look at it? When Rodney was 12, his mother, Dorothy, moved them to Kew Gardens in Queens. Here's Chris Calhoun. His aunt, Pearlie, and uh, Rodney's older sister were going to the movies, and he begged them to go. Aunt Pearlie said, well, if you scrub up, you can go. So he ran up the stairs and washed his face and hands. And he came back down, and they were halfway down the block laughing and running away from him. And he screamed out, please, I want to go, please, I want to go, and they never came back. He actually got his first laugh at five years old. He was still hungry after dinner and told his mother that he'd like some more food. And she said, well, you've had sufficient. And he said, I didn't even have any fish. Sadly, everybody laughed, but he noticed that that mood lifted, and he never forgot that, and kind of spent the rest of his life trying to get that good feeling back. I was very unhappy, so you tried to think of comedy relief, so you tried to think of some way to write a funny joke or get a funny thought, and just to break up the, uh, how unhappy you are, I guess. He told me many times that when he would get laughter from the audience, that was the closest warm feeling he could compare to love. At the age of 15, Rodney Dangerfield began writing jokes. When he turned 18, he took his father's stage name, Phil Roy, and started his comedic career under the stage name Jack Roy in hopes of becoming a professional comedian like his idols, W.C. Fields, Groucho Marx, and Laurel and Hardy. It all started when he was working as a young man in a club in Brooklyn called the Polish Falcon. And when the comic got off stage uh, one evening, he got up and did a few jokes. Boy, what a racket. You don't know what you go through in show business. You're kids in show business. At the time, I was a kid and doing what the kids do. I lacked maturity. I lacked an image. Here's comedian Harry Basil. When Rodney started in show business uh, as Jack Roy, he didn't know what he was doing yet. He sang on stage, he even used props for a while. He didn't know what type of a comedian he wanted to be. As Jack Roy, he was really doing impressions. Humphrey Bogart and, and Cary Grant and Jimmy Durante. And they weren't that good, really. And what a story. It makes so much sense now that we're listening to it, all of us, right? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the life story of Rodney Dangerfield, here on Our American Stories. Fun and frolic and 
so do I, and so do I. Some think it's right to be so melancholic, to find a side, to find a side. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Rodney Dangerfield singing in the movie Easy Money. Let's return to where we left off. It's the early 1940s, and Rodney, known at the time as Jack Roy, is struggling as a young New York comedian. Here's the former producer for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Stan Irwin, former William Morris agent Ed Summerfield, and comedians Tommy Smothers and Rob Schneider. Jack Roy was also known as Mad Jack. Mad Jack comes from his attitude. He was angry on the street all the time. I said, what are you so mad about? Ah, you don't know what I go through, Eddie. Every day it's something else. This agent and this girl and this club owner, can't they see I'm funny? He's not saying, I appeal to everyone who could do me absolutely no good. He was an angry man, but a, a sweet, angry man. Well, I never saw him happy. He was always complaining. He was complaining about this or that. And it sounded like a routine, but it, it wasn't a routine. Rodney suffered depression his whole life. He wasn't kidding. He really, he was uh, a depressed guy. He was down. I mean, this afternoon I was in a bar. They told me to get out. They wanted to start the happy hour. In 1949, Rodney is 28. Having been on the comedy circuit for over 10 years and with nothing to show for his efforts. But things started to look up for Rodney when he met a beautiful jazz singer named Joyce Indig. The two decided to get married quit show business, and settle down. Rodney went out and uh, became a aluminum siding salesman in the 1950s. And a lot of comedians made day money selling aluminum siding across the river in New Jersey. And Dangerfield was an excellent aluminum siding salesman. He believed that um, making the customer like you was an important part of getting the sale. And so he, he kind of, you know, used his humor to help him get his foot in the door. I live in a town called Bergenfield, New Jersey, and my best friend, Mark Levine, his parents' claim to fame was that Rodney Dangerfield did the aluminum siding on their house. And he told Murray and Gloria Levine, I'm going to be a stand-up. And he told them a joke about an egg. Sex with me, that's ridiculous. My wife makes love to me. There's always a reason for it. One night she used me to time an egg. So he tells them that joke and gets in his car and drives away. And Mrs. Levine goes, Murray, he'll never make it. When he was out of show business working this square gig as a aluminum siding salesman and living in the suburbs and going on the road and taking orders, lining up contractors, he continued to write jokes. And he kept a duffel bag in his bedroom at home. And he would just write funny jokes, funny jokes, funny jokes for 11 years. He filled up this duffel bag with funny jokes. Well, the other night I felt like having a few drinks. Someone opened a bartender and said, surprise me. He showed me a naked picture of my wife. Joyce kept her promise. She quit the business. Rodney, Jack Roy, still had the bug in him to perform. Rodney and Joyce would have two children, Brian and Melanie. But Rodney's inability to leave show business was breaking up his marriage. I got divorced, and uh, I life sort of caved in on me, and I said, I'll go back in show business. You can't find perfection in relationships, but I can find it in my work. He had filled, as he said, a bag of jokes that he had been writing. So he had uh, a wealth of material. So even though he had not been on the stage, he had been working, working on his act and working on his jokes. In 1962, at a failed stint in comedy, a failed marriage 
and no money in the bank, Rodney returned to the comic circuit at the age of 40. But these struggles along with his maturity made Rodney a better comedian. His stage name, on the other hand, Jack Roy, was lacking. He went to a club that he had worked in the past and, um, and the club owner always ran the names of the acts in the Friday paper, The Mirror. And Rodney wasn't sure he'd do very well. So instead of using the name Jack Roy, he told the club owner, George McFanna, to just make up a name. So he made up a name. Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield? See, you just heard it. You're starting to say it. Listen to me. Take the name. He was surprised that the name was Rodney Dangerfield. Um, but it went so well that night, uh, he killed. And he thought maybe, maybe that's the name for him. So it stuck and kind of became his lucky charm. The name change helped. But the angry guy routine also needed a makeover. First thing he came up with is, with me, nothing goes right. I tell you, with me, you know, nothing works out. And then he would write jokes accordingly to that. Every time I leave my house, my wife tells me to call her in case something goes right. Rodney's new routine was working, earning him bookings in more prestigious venues. But at the age of 44, Rodney knew he needed more exposure. There was no better venue at the time than the Ed Sullivan Show. But unknowns had to audition, so Rodney auditioned in 1966, and he killed it. But Sullivan proved to be harder to win over. Sullivan never called after that. I said, gee, what do you have to do, man? I tell you, I don't get a break with nothing. Rodney Dangerfield. After three long weeks, Rodney got the call to appear on The Ed Sullivan Show on March 5th, 1967. I'll tell you, my apartment, nothing works. I got a radio, I can hardly hear it. I got a television set, I can't make out the picture. But when my wife opens her mouth, perfect reception. (laughs) With my wife, we got nothing but arguments. And I can never get a word in. The other night I told her, I said, there's another side to that argument. She said, I know, my mother's coming right over. Here's owner of Rodney's comedy club, Dangerfields, Anthony Bavacquia. The Ed Sullivan Show, uh, if you did well, if the ovation was uh, good, uh, better than normal, Ed Sullivan would call you back to take a bow. And that's it! So, his ovation was good. Uh, so, as the uh, ovation is starting to dip a little bit, uh, Ed Sullivan would be getting ready to bring on the next act. Rodney would, uh, from behind the curtain, would peek his head out. The uh, applause... It went sky high, and Sullivan, uh, encore, take a, take a bow, Rodney. So Rodney would come out and take another bow, and then he would run back behind his, uh, the curtain. Ed Sullivan never do that. Rodney earned $1,000 for his first appearance on Sullivan. When it went well, he was booked more times at $1,500 a pop. Here's Joan and comedians Harry Basil and Dennis Blair. For Rodney, it was a very, very slow climb. In fact, even when he was doing Sullivan, he was still selling aluminum siding. A customer said to his secretary, uh, is Mr. Roy in show business? We saw him on the, the Ed Sullivan show the other night. Oh, no, no, he does that on the side. <laughs> on the side. He shows up at this guy's house to do aluminum siding. At about 6 o'clock, he's doing the side, and he says to the guy, 
hey, uh, you mind if I come in and watch the TV for a little while? The guy goes, okay. He turns on the TV, and Rodney's on TV, and he's watching himself, and the guy at the house is standing there and looking at him and looking at the TV going, what kind of alternate universe am I in? The guy who's doing my sighting is on Sullivan. Rodney also established his signature look and manic style of delivery. Here's Rodney, Stan Irwin, Pat Cooper, and producer George Slaughter. First time I did the Ed Sullivan show, I got dressed and I wore a black suit and a red tie and a white shirt. Then I did well and he brought me back to do another show. What am I going to wear the second time? I thought to myself, I don't know what to wear. I can't figure it out. I'll wear the same thing. So I got known for, for a red tie and a white shirt and a black suit quite by accident. His mannerisms were individual. I mean, the reaching for the tie. No one else did it because if you did do it, you thought of Dangerfield. He was a fidgety guy. And the sweat was real. The ticks were real. He was constantly pulling, constantly nervous. So that was just part of him that worked for the character. When you talk like Rodney Dangerfield... I'll tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? Some people, they think you're having a nervous breakdown. But when Rodney, that's his persona. He walked out, and it looked like, uh, hey, you just came in here, I want to tell you something. And it would look like an accident. Rodney looked like an accident to begin with, right? Before a car accident with no survivors. But... It was no accident. He prepared those jokes, the routine of those jokes, the construction of the jokes. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? I know I'm ugly. I asked a bartender to make me a zombie. Told me God beat him to it. Your classic Rodney Dangerfield joke is, oh, I was ugly. Well, you set it up. I came out. That's the middle. The doctor slapped my mother. You know, it, and it, it reverses right at the end, and it has a meaning, and he loved that type of joke. I'll tell you, my wife, she never went for me. Well, the first time I called her up, she told me, come on over, there's nobody home. I went over, there was nobody home. And when we come back, we're going to continue with this remarkable story, a man taking all that pain, all that grief, sublimating it, and turning it into an act, turning it into a living. That line, I couldn't find perfection in relationships, so I tried to find it in work really chilling. When we come back, more of the story of Rodney Dangerfield here on Our American Stories. listening to Rodney Dangerfield singing in the movie Back to School and I Can't Help But Laugh. Just one of my top three favorite comedies. And it's because of Rodney. No one else could have done it like him. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the story of Rodney Dangerfield. Armed with a new name, Look and Delivery, Rodney was gaining fans all across America. But his rocket didn't actually launch until he stumbled upon the greatest hook in the history of comedy. Here's comedians Dom Herrera, Robert Townsend, Phyllis Diller, Fred Willard, George Lopez, Brad Garrett, Louis Anderson, and Dennis Blair. It was just perfect. It was the most brilliant hook ever. He tapped into a brand that spoke to 
everybody in America. He had those wonderful bulging eyes. And the tick and the great delivery and of all things that wonderful line. No respect. I don't got no respect at all. You're the story of my life. No respect. I don't got no respect. And the audience just cheered. It's like Tony Bennett starting out with I left my heart in San Francisco. And now oh, here it comes. This is what we're waiting for. It's the same thing when I was a kid. No respect. The time my old man took me to the zoo. They thanked him for returning me. From a kid who doesn't get to stay out and play longer, or the housewife and mother who works all day. At some point during the day, they go, I don't get no respect. Jack Benny just thought that uh, Rodney had probably the best image there ever was for comedy. Jack Benny came down to Rodney's dressing room once and said, you know, my image is an image of a cheap guy. It's okay. And he said to Rodney, but your image gets into the soul of everybody. Everybody thinks they're not being respected. He knew he was starting to get a, a good reaction from the audiences, and he had booked this gig uh, in Long Island with 400 people, and he, he brought his dad to that show. His dad said, you know, I think you've got something, and Rodney never forgot that. And he was so glad that that, that approval came before uh, his father passed. Rodney's hard work was paying off. But there was only one gig guaranteed to land his rocket on the moon. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Here's comedian Richard Lewis. That five and a half minutes, more people will see you on that monologue than if you played, say, this nightclub here three times a day, you know, for like 50 years. So you better treat that six minutes like it's like gold. Johnny Carson got 20 to 25 million viewers a night. The whole country watched the Johnny Carson show. And most importantly, the whole industry watched the Tonight Show. If you didn't get on the Tonight Show, <laughs> you weren't happening. You also could end your career there, too. And if he uh, said, sit down, that was the ultimate. But to have a chance at a sit down, you first had to book the show. But that was impossible for Rodney because of a mistake he made years earlier. Now, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was a rough shape, you know? He had been at the improv, and he wrote a very funny joke, and it got a pretty good laugh at the club. And yet, a few days later, it was coming out of Johnny Carson's mouth. He was so upset that he wrote a letter to Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was very upset with the letter didn't really know Rodney, and he said, who is this guy that's saying that I have a thief on the staff? And Johnny did not want to use uh, Rodney for the longest time. A few years later, a couple of the talent bookers uh, came up to him after a performance and said, okay, you got, you got to do Johnny's show. And Rodney said, I'd, I'd like to, but, you know, he doesn't want me. And they said, oh, he's forgotten about that. He's forgotten about that by now. And so they booked a date, and Rodney was like, oh, so happy, and telling everyone, calling everybody. And then his phone rang, and well, guess what? Johnny's not over it. One night, Rodney was at the Copacabana, where Tony Bennett was on in 1969. And Johnny Carson pulled up in a limo with Stan Irwin, his producer, and saw the crowd just trying to get in and decide to give up. Rodney personally set him up with a table for two. And Rodney looked at, at Johnny and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Johnny said, forget about it. And the next thing he knew, would you welcome Mr. Rodney Danger? And Rodney became a national institution just from, just from how much Johnny liked. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, last week was a rough week for me last week. 
I saw my kid in a milkman going to a father and son dinner. It was great that he'd come in six minutes of all home runs. Rodney was not interested in entertaining an audience. He wanted to pulverize him. He wanted to kill him. Ladies and gentlemen, Rodney Dangerfield. He wanted to leave him on the floor left. I tell you, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? Uh, last week I saw my doctor. I told him, doctor, every day I wake up, I look in the mirror, I want to throw up. What's wrong with me? He said, I don't know, but your eyesight is perfect. Well, you should tell me, when you go on the caution show, you got to do damage. You got to do damage. <laughs> there was a stand-up and there was the panel part. Which can I deliver to Johnny? And which do I want to play to the audience with? This was all part of the craft. He just killed Johnny. I mean, Johnny would literally cry. And and he was one of the few that could do that in the industry. I'll tell you, all you hear is sex with sex. I had it up to here. Yeah. Not lately, though, you know? I don't think I ever saw Johnny Carson laugh as long or as loud as when Rodney was next to him. Here's Jeff Ross. Well, those are the best clips, you know, when you see Johnny Carson laughing, and he was such a great setup man with uh, Rodney, so they had a fun chemistry. It used to take me three months to prepare a talk show between the stand-up and the panel. I needed 32 new jokes that were all funny, this and that, and, and that's how long it would take me to prepare six or eight minutes. When he um, would write a joke, he would literally write a joke. I mean, he would start maybe with a, with a thought and write that down. And then he'd keep kind of adding to it and reworking it and reworking it. Well, last week I went to the track. I showed off the opening gun. They killed my horse. Every show that he did on television, his handwritten Mike Douglas, Mer Griffin, Steve Allen show, every show that he did. By 1969, at the age of 48, Rodney's success on Carson made him a national phenomenon. He could now command tens of thousands of dollars in Vegas, but he was about to be confronted with an event that would force him to choose between his family and his career. His ex-wife Joyce was suffering with debilitating arthritis, and she began drinking heavily to deal with her condition. Here's comedians Harry Basil and Paul Rodriguez. Harry was famous. He was Rodney Dangerfield. And there was a big demand for him to go on the road. The job of a stand-up comic is crowded, so crowded. And just to get a little bit of attention is so difficult. And when you have a little bit of attention, you want more. You don't just walk away because you got to raise some kids. Who does that? Rodney did. But he decided to open up his own club and put his name on it. Kind of like Ricky Ricardo with the club Babalu, you know, just going to work every day and being there for the kids and just going and working at nighttime. Rodney opened Dangerfields on New York's Lower East Side. The comedy club was a success, but it still failed to get him any respect. He said to me, he says, you know, I'm here I am, I got my own club, I'm trying to do well, and, and this woman came up for me, Eddie, and she said, Rodney, could I have your autograph and some more butter? Joyce's condition continued to deteriorate, and she passed away, leaving Rodney the single father of 7-year-old Melanie and 11-year-old Brian. He had his priorities right. Raise his children once they were adults, once they had a, their, own, uh, their own lives, once his responsibility was over, he went back and became even bigger than he was. The first step after Rodney's return to the world of comedy was a chance meeting with a young director and writer named Harold Ramis, who was about to shoot a low-budget movie called Caddyshack. Here's the director of Caddyshack, Harold Ramis. Our first thought was uh, that 
maybe Don Rickles should play the part. But at the time, Rodney was had an amazing run on the Tonight Show. He was killing every time, just hysterically funny. And uh, I forgot who first said it, but we said, you know, maybe Rodney's the guy. We didn't know that if he could act, but we thought even if he couldn't act, just being himself would uh, would work for us. And we know how that worked out. And when we come back, the final installment, the final segment of this terrific story, Rodney Dangerfield story, here on Our American Stories. I don't get a break with nothing. When I was born, I brought no joy. No respect, no respect. My old man said he wanted a boy. No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid, always alone. No respect, no respect. Halloween, I had a trick-or-treat over the phone. No respect, no respect. Friends don't call This is our American Stories, and let's return where we left off. With Rodney getting cast in the low-budget movie Caddyshack, here's director Harold Ramis. So we worked on his first day's shooting, and I said, all right, action. Rodney, action? He says, you want me to do the bit? I said, yeah, do the bit. Okay, so he, he, didn't, he was so raw, he didn't even understand that action was the, the signal to, to start. But uh, the, the punchline to that is, by the end of the shoot... He finished the scene and he came over to me and he said, I guess I'm an actor. The first scene he ever shot, he starts to sweat. I said, oh my God, this guy's going to have a heart attack. I go, you know, so in between takes, I go, Ronnie, are you okay? No, no. I said, what's, what's the matter? I suck. I'm suck. I'm, I'm, I'm dying out there. I said, what do you mean? Nobody's laughing. Nobody's laughing. I said, Ronnie, they can't laugh. Right, because I suck. I said, Rod, they can't laugh because they won't be able to use the soundtrack. So let's dance. Caddyshack was released in 1980 and was a smash hit. But its true success is found in the avid cult following it's developed over the years. Here's Everybody Loves Raymond co-star Brad Garrett. The man's a menace. Most comedians, that's probably one of their top ten movies of all time. And it's, it's what we call a road movie. It's something when we get on the bus or get on a plane, we take literally with us and we watch and it stands up still today. In 1983, at the age of 61, Rodney was asked to play the role of a hard-living derelict and degenerate named Monty Capuletti. Here's the writer for Easy Money, Dennis Blair. This was like the height of his popularity and he goes, so they want to do a movie starring me. So if you come up with an idea, let me know. So by the next night, I had this idea of just, you know, a guy has to stop drinking, smoking, and gambling for a year to, to get $10 million. He thought, that's a good idea. I'm very familiar with him, and there's a part of me that's part of him, too, you know? Uh, the idea that uh, a good time is going to the track and having a few drinks and gambling. That's part of me, too, my personal life. It's hard to contain myself. That's where we got the idea for the movie. Comedy comes from tragedy, and that could not be more true about anyone 
uh, more than Rodney Dangerfield. He really was a tortured soul who turned it into uh, a lot of jokes and making everyone else laugh. Uh, but he didn't laugh a lot himself. Rodney's next movie was his greatest success and earned him a new generation of fans. Back to School dropped in 1986 engrossed more than $100 million at the box office and became another cult hit with the college kids, a group that would become one of Rodney's most enthusiastic fans. At 65, Rodney had finally climbed to the top of the comedy world. Mindful of his struggles, Rodney used his status and his HBO comedy show to help jumpstart the careers of talented and up-and-coming comedians. I know how tough it is for a comedian when he starts. If I see a guy who I think is funny, it's my pleasure to try to move him along. Here, let the people see him. Key. Appreciated. Talent. In this thing called showbiz, he's one of the guys who's coming up real fast. He's and I like that about Rodney Dangerfield. He admired other comics because he loved the art of, of comedy. Robert Townsend is really dying about okay. Rodney had a lot of empathy for comedians, so he knew how difficult it was. Give it up for Robert Schimmel, okay? He genuinely had a daddy motivation where he kind of felt um, the, the need to nurture. I'm going to hire both of you. Rodney was offered by HBO a series of stand-up comedy specials where he would bring in stand-up comics and feature them on his HBO specials. He was the doorkeeper. He was able to open doors for guys that he really liked. All right, give it up now for Tim Allen. Okay, here we go. All right, Tim, here we go. Most of the people that were on those shows became superstars. All right. It was a big break for them in show business to be on a show with Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney was responsible for a whole bunch of superstars. Seinfeld, Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was his opening act, which he was very proud of. Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne Barr. Just all of these people became superstars. Dice was on for seven minutes, and he became an arena act, which meant he was selling out 15,000 seaters based on seven minutes on Rodney's HBO special, which was a phenomena. You're going to get a kick out of Bad Sam, okay? Sammy West. Sam Kinison was uh, rebellious. Uh, Sam was having a tough time in the business because he was different. It just shows how generous he was. Most comics are very threatened by other funny people. He would help us out. Sometimes we would sell him jokes that he'd never used because he knew we needed the money and, and he allowed us to keep our dignity, you know? Some really uh, bad material I sold him over the years. <laughs> Just having Rodney know you and think you're funny was like, a, you know, you carry it with you like a badge of honor. As a young guy back then, I was like, that was huge for me and for my confidence. After a 10-year courtship, Rodney, the 72-year-old Jew, married the 40-year-old Mormon Joan Child in 1993. His act was selling out all over the country Everyone wanted to see Rodney. What do you say we bust up this joint? Bust a wide open, are you kidding? My wife and I are at one of Rodney's shows and Jim Carrey opened for him. And, and you know, it's like a comic opening for a rock star. Get the f*** off the stage. Bring out Rodney. We don't f*** you. Get out. And poor Jim Carrey left the stage in tears. I thought he was going to leave the business. As the 1990s came to a close, Rodney was approaching his 80s and his years of hard living were beginning to catch up with him. On August 24th, 2004, Rodney had heart valve replacement surgery. 
When asked how long he'd be hospitalized, he said, If all goes well, about a week. If not, about an hour and a half. After Rodney's um, final heart surgery, he slipped into a coma and was in the coma for 40 days. They pretty much uh, let me try everything to try to bring him out. And, um, and part of that included, they gave me permission to bring in, um, beyond family, other people that had strong emotional connections to him. And I, uh, I got on the phone and called a few comics. And they all knew the mission. Try to say something that maybe Rodney would react to. I heard some of the best material in the world from Jay Leno, Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler. Louis Anderson came almost every day. Bob Saget, Andrew Dice Clay, Roseanne. And we just thought there was there was hope. Here's Jay Leno on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you a great Rodney story. I was pretty close to Rodney. And when Rodney was in the hospital, he was in a coma. And his wife, Joan, God bless her, she was by his side the whole time. And I go to visit Rodney, and we're standing there, and she goes, well, Jay, take Rodney's hand. So I take Rodney's hand. And she says, Rodney, if you know Jay's here, squeeze his finger. Okay, so I feel my finger get squeezed. And then I lean and I said to Rodney, Rodney, that's not my finger. And Rodney, and I could see Rodney kind of, you know, he just, you know, and I felt, I, I felt cool. Oh, I made, Jay, I made yeah, one yeah. of my favorite guys laugh. On October 5th, 2004, at 1.20 p.m., Rodney Dangerfield passed away at 82. A funeral was held for him a few days later. What a crowd, what a crowd. The other day I told my kid, I said, someday you'll have children of your own. He said, so are you. Well, last week my house was on fire. My wife told the kids, be quiet, you'll wake up daddy. Rodney is the only comic I can think of where guys get together and they'd all start quoting jokes of his. You know, my family, during the Civil War, they fought for the West. My wife, she's a lousy cook. Uh, at my house, we pray after we eat. <laughs> I, I, I miss Rodney. God, it's tough not to. I don't think he really believed he was that good. But the audience said, yes, you're wonderful. And he was. And uh, that's it. And, you know, he always say, hey, you got no respect. You got no respect. In, in reality, he, all he did was get respect. I just wish that everyone had the chance that I had to spend so much time with him and to um, see his humanity and his generous spirit. I was the luckiest girl in the world. Like everyone else in this thing called showbiz, I like applause, but I'll tell you, there's something to me that's more important than applause. Maybe nothing to you, but a lot to me. It's just when I walk off, if, if you'd all just give me one of these. One of these is Rodney holding up the OK sign. I'm Greg Hengler. 
And this is Our American Stories. And great work as always, Greg. And his bride said it best, his humanity, his generosity. We were all lucky to know Rodney, that he shared his pain so honestly with us, made us all laugh about our own pain. He did what Arthur Miller said all art should do, and that's make us all feel less alone. And Rodney did that. Rodney Dangerfield's story, here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We love to tell stories about music here, and this next piece by our Hillsdale intern, Monty Montgomery, and my goodness, this kid listens to so much music, he's managed to hit his goal of listening to 2,000 albums over the past two years this May. That's just sick. Uh, Here's one of those stories, by the way. Monty, with the story of Bob Dylan's subterranean Homesick Blues. Bob Dylan is an American icon, and his song Subterranean Homesick Blues off the album Bringing It All Back Home is too. The song may be referred to as a classic today, but in 1965, it was downright revolutionary. To fully understand why, one has to go forward, though, to August 1st, 1981. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Just moments ago, all of the VJs and the crew here at MTV collectively hit our executive producer, Sue Steinberg, over the head with a bottle of champagne, and behold, a new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. But as it turned out, people have been looking at music in that way for quite some time. That is, through the format of what we call a music video today. But as to who the first person to do a music video was, well, that's a hotly contested topic. Some claim that it was Tony Bennett in 1956. Others claim it was French musician Serge Gainsbourg in the early 1960s. But in reality, the first true music video may have been made by Bob Dylan himself for Subtraining Homesick Blues. You see, 
1965, at the height of Bob Dylan's protest folk fame, notable filmmaker D.A. Penbaker was covering Dylan's 1965 concert tour through England. She's got everything she needs. She's an artist. She don't look bad. Although the film was released in 1967, two years after Dylan released Bringing It All Back Home, its impact was so massive when released that in 1998, the Library of Congress decided to preserve it forever in its archives. And the biggest reason for that was Bob Dylan's innovative music video for Subterranean Homesick Blues. Placed at the very start of the documentary to set the stage, the video features Bob Dylan standing in an alleyway, holding a stack of cue cards with the lyrics of the song written on them, some intentionally misspelled. For example, even though the lyrics of the song say $11 bills, Dylan holds up a card that has $20 bills written on it. Funny. The music video was short, but its influence lives on, because no more than 38 musicians and many more companies with their ads have copied its theming. From indie rock star Stephen Malkmus in his song Discretion Grove, which features the same dropping of the cue cards as seen in Subterranean Homesick Blues. To the flaming lips in a promotional video. If you could want the world enough, switch, would you do it? To British rock band Oasis for their documentary of Dig Out Your Soul, their last album, in which Liam and Noel introduce each other with the cue card technique as seen in Subterranean Homesick Blues. And Weird Al on two separate occasions. As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. So it's pretty safe to say that Bob Dylan might lay claim to one of the most influential music videos of all time. A music video that also happens to be one of the first. And great job on that, Monty. The pump don't work because the vandals took the handles. And to this day, I don't know what the heck Dylan's talking about, but I love it. And so does the world. And by the way, if you get a chance, we did a very special segment on Dylan accepting the Nobel Prize. And Dylan did something really interesting. He couldn't show up well, because Bob Dylan doesn't show up to accept awards. He couldn't not show up because, well, he's not rude. So he did what only Dylan would do. He recorded, with music in the background, a tome, a salute to Western literature. His depiction, his description of American art, of American music, and particularly of Moby Dick. 
is one of the great, great explanations of one of the great American novels. It's beautiful. It's literate. Only Dylan could have done it. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear that. And while you're there, sign up for our free newsletter. Five of our best stories a week come to you each week, transcribed and in audio form. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Thanks to our Hillsdale intern, Monty Montgomery. The story of a song, Subterranean Homesick Blues by Bob Dylan. Our American Stories, and it's time for another edition of our On Leadership series. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us this fascinating conversation with Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, the best and most comprehensive cancer care center and centers in the country. Steve is also a member of the Job Creators Network, a sponsor of this show, and the Job Creators Network does remarkable work on the public policy front for small business owners and business owners across this country. And they give those small business owners a real voice. Now let's go to the beginning of Alex's conversation with Steve Bonner. Steve, we also ask everyone about their very first job as a kid. You know, what was the very first one that paid you? What uh, lessons did you learn from it that helped you get to where you are today? Absolutely. And because we had uh, this family with limited means, um, but also with all this competitive fire burning in us, Certainly, I had a great appetite for better things, and I started working, and I did everything to make a few bucks. I started um, shoveling snow in Minneapolis and mowing lawns and babysitting, um, and then migrated. I uh, cleaned a a paint factory on Sunday night so that it was clean for the workers to show up to on Monday morning, and uh, I was the youngest paper route runner in Minneapolis that uh, they knew about in history. Um, I convinced a guy who was running the district and couldn't fill this neighborhood to let me have it. So I did the Sunday morning paper delivery at 6 a.m. on snowy, cold uh, winter mornings in Minneapolis, which is lonely and hard and uh, solitary and really developmental. I mean, those things all carry through with me today. Do you remember you were paid for a lot of those jobs? How much an hour? Sure, 10, ten cents an hour for babysitting. <laughs> I remember that, 10 cents an hour. And I would kind of hope that either they wouldn't come home for 10 hours and I'd get a whole <laughs> buck or they'd come home after eight hours and they'd round up and give me a buck, right? And uh, the newspaper route was an enormous education and I was too young to do it. I could do the physical part, but um, the whole management of accounts payable in a newspaper route was new learning to me. 
So the newspaper company gives you the newspapers and you deliver them, but you owe the newspaper for what they give you. And then you have to go out and collect, door-to-door collect, and make sure you collect enough to be able to pay the newspapers, and then what's left is yours. And you go through this cycle of, and I didn't think about it this way, but you're building this account payable to the newspaper, you're delivering, you're collecting, you don't think about it that, you know, Mrs. Jones is never home or she doesn't answer her door, so she now owes you four bucks and you owe the newspaper 380 And uh, if you don't get it from somewhere else, you're dead. And you spend a night collecting and you stop by the drugstore and you buy a candy bar and you see uh, another friend or two and you're a big shot, so you buy them a couple candy bars. And then you go to pay the newspaper what you owe them and you say, wait a minute, you know, where's the cash? And so was... To me, it was my first real look at some of the complexities of simple business economics. Did you have to get customers then for your routes, or were you in charge of an area and you had to recruit customers? Yeah, and they could call a number and subscribe, but you also could ring the doorbell and you could leave free newspapers. You know, if you wound up with, say, 75 newspapers and somebody had canceled and they hadn't caught up with it yet, so you only delivered 73, you might deliver the other two to somebody with a little note, you know, I'm here at 5 in the morning, I'd love to deliver your Sunday newspaper, here's my number or whatever, give me a call. Did that teach you a lot about selling? Yeah, I mean, persuasion and customer relationships, the people that were not deadbeats, but they were very, very challenging to collect from, you know, and the relationship management of that. And humor has always been a big part of our lives. That was another big value for my parents was, you know, have fun, find the humor in things, know that stressful times can often be diffused through the use of humor and self-deprecating humor and all that. And so to ring and ring and ring a doorbell and you know they're in there and then they finally come and they're ticked off at you for being so persistent but you know you got to pay for their newspapers and so you know a little bit of humor or fun can take that out and so did you crack a joke to them when they got to the door i wouldn't i mean i wouldn't crack a joke but i might say you know it's your friendly newspaper boy again and sorry to keep ringing um but whatever or you know you might see something in their property that you could have some fun yeah. with it was an expression of who they were and what was important to them you know little ways to connect with some twinkle it's more than just pay your damn bill so we've heard about steve's first jobs as a young kid and a young kid by the way who never dreamed of becoming a healthcare executive what kid does until he later met cancer treatment centers of america's founder dick stevenson one thing I want to ask you about is your joining of um, becoming the CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. You did something fascinating before accepting the offer. What did you do? So the the context on that was literally three years of back and forth and with this visionary um, innovator who had never scaled a business and who looked at me and said, here comes the big company bureaucrat who's going to overwhelm my good idea with bureaucracy. And I looked at him and I said, so here's a brilliant small-minded innovator who doesn't understand infrastructure, yet I love his vision. Um, And we kept circling back to this. And uh, we did two things on parallel tracks. One, I went to another startup in financial services and joined his board as an advisor. And he hired another CEO and tried to do it with, uh, in my opinion, a suboptimal leader. Um, And so... 
these things converged in a couple ways, but I, in the meantime, I got to go and meet with some CTCA patients. And that was a very compelling part of the process. And I met with, I remember a patient who spent the time with me, didn't know who I was, but basically said, you know, this place is special. I've been, I've had cancer, I've been treated, and they said, if it weren't for Cancer Treatment Centers of America, I would be dead today. And just a light went off in my head. I've created jobs, you know, financial security with neat products and all that stuff. I've never saved a life with my career. And that's a little bit arrogant because I can't do it myself. But that just pulled me even harder towards it. And in the meantime, this other CEO was failing. And so my desire and Dick's need and desire just caused us both to get much more creative about how we could structure a win-win, and that coalesced to my joining the company. When Steve became the CEO, things were not exactly going swimmingly there. And so I asked him, where did he decide to start for turning things around? If you've got a great idea and you're putting a lot of energy and time and resources into it and it's not behaving the way you want, you start to populate it with more ideas and hope that those will dig you out of what you're trying to do. And so when I came in, uh, the company had lost significant money the year before, didn't have the resources to do that again. So it was kind of the perfect storm. Nobody could defend the old way. We were very committed to the mission, but the business execution of that needed to be re-examined. And so we went through a wonderful process that I had discovered and worked with before of off-site key people What's the core of this? You know, where's the real secret sauce here? And how do we articulate that into a mission and a vision and a set of values? And then let's step back and look at everything that's consuming resources and ask what comes through that filter. And what we found were uh, four different businesses, healthcare businesses, that had been appended on to this as an idea that this might be the magic formula to break out by adding another product or service line or whatever. And as we looked at them, we said, that's strategically irrelevant. And so we sold them, shut them down, and then just focused on building this integrated, holistic, patient-centric delivery of treatment for patients with late-stage complex cancer. You're speaking about it all very calmly, but it's a very dramatic thing to do. You know, it ballsy on your part to shut down these businesses that clearly other people had thought were good ideas. Yeah, but the good news was everybody sat at the table, you know, the key decision makers sat at the table with us and thrashed through this, you know, we'll deal with current reality later, just what is it that's really going to give us a right to be successful? And when we come back, more with Steve Bonner, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and a member of the Job Creators Network. This is our On Leadership series. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. This is our On Leadership series. And today we're focusing on Steve Bonner's story, the former CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And let's go back to Alex and his conversation with Steve. A company's management refocusing in on the mission is crucial. But at the end of the day, they're only a few people. And most of the time, they're not the ones directly interacting with their customers, the patients. And so how do you get all of your people to be driven towards the mission? We recruit very hard, and we created an onboarding process, which began with a recognition that every wonderful person that you hire, no matter how carefully you recruit, and the more successful they've been, the even more so, are a cultural terrorist. They've been successful because they've done what they've done. You're hiring because they've been successful, and they're instinctively going to bring what they've worked for them somewhere else. And so you need to have that conversation. And so day one for every employee was a very thoughtful conversation about mission, vision, values, brand promise. This is who we are. This is what we do. Does this work for you? Are you committed to this? And how do we do that? And then there's, a, like, you start on a Monday. There's a day three or five feedback component to that, and there's a day 30. Um, we also didn't guide the first day by saying, well, you're here, welcome, you know, you're going to spend the day with Herb, um, and you say, why with Herb? And the real answer is because Herb doesn't have anything else to do, and the reason he has to do is because he's probably a cultural terrorist too, and so you start with, you know, the most senior person in your chain, you have this opening conversation, and then you spend your time with one of the busiest people because that's who's really going to be relevant. Gosh, Steve's making me nervous. Am I a cultural terrorist in my own company? I'm still here so far. I'm still here so far. Anyways, in addition to their highly intentional recruiting and onboarding process, Cancer Treatment Centers of America created a company-wide bonus pool from part-time janitors all the way up to the founder that encouraged everyone to be aligned with the patient-centered mission. A bonus pool that would be paid out if they, collectively, as a team, hit fully laid out key goals. The structure was in place when I came. It had never paid out. Um, And then the first, no, let's see, we went through a cleanup period and then we started to gain traction. And I think the third year I was there, we went positive in the pool and paid out like a quarter of a percent to everybody. But it was, holy cow, you know, all these years this is really paying out. And we got up to 14%, 15% of base pay. Wow. Imagine getting a bonus of 15% of your salary. Woo! But inevitably, for some folks, a noble mission and generous incentives aren't enough to align themselves with the team. And you have to cut the cord. So how did Steve Bonner handle that as CEO? When it comes to termination, to do it in a way that is mutually respectful and in my opinion a termination is more about the people who stay than it is about the people who go and the culture needs to see that even though you've come to the conclusion that this person needs to leave it's with respect that is fascinating even though you're treating the people leaving with respect because it's the right thing to do steve's saying that it's actually more about the people who stay and showing them how much you respect your people. I next ask Steve a question we ask every guest. Steve, talk about uh, is there a passion or a quirk or a hobby that folks wouldn't expect from you? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what people expect, right? Um, I think one of the more amusing things that I get is uh, wander around my neighborhood, and people can't see on the radio, but I'm 6'2 and 205 pounds, and I'm following these two little 12-pound poodles at the end of a string, you know, lead me down the road, and, you know, here I am in my own mind, a successful multi-billion dollar company CEO, and uh, I'm just following these two little mindless, lovable poodles around. That surprises people. Does it just feel ridiculous? It feels sweet to me. I mean, I, yeah, exactly. And, you know, where they take me may be the same and it may be different. And they have their little interactions, too. So it's another exercise in leadership. Always be leading. It sure is better than always be closing. And when you have kids like Steve does, you are always leading. And it always isn't so clear cut. Talk about on the other side of it now as a parent, and especially, you know, as a financially successful parent, how do you, you know, pass your values on to your kids, which can be a tricky thing to do? Yeah, it's a very tricky thing to do. And the thing that jumps into my mind is that the most important job we all have, and the one that we get absolutely no training for, is being a parent. <laughs> and if you ask me where there are things I would do differently and could have done better. It would have been along that spectrum of uh, raising and teaching my own kids. And it wasn't that I wasn't available. It was that I'm a workaholic, you know, and it was that uh, while I got to sporting events and all that stuff, I probably wasn't as available. When you talk about how much our patients travel, you know, how much I traveled yeah. and I loved every minute of it, but looking back, you know, there's some things that I certainly could do better with them. But I think the important things that get harder when you have more financial resources are to, you know, empower your kids to make their own mistakes and to have to find their own way. And it's easy to, very easy to make sure that the tuition is paid and that the clothes are there and that travel is done and athletic support is there and so forth. And I just know how much more effective I am as a person because I learned. Uh, and this is a favorite phrase of the owner of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. I learned that scarcity is your friend. It's true. When you want something you don't have and you don't have the resources to get it to see how that engages creativity and the hard work and the competitiveness and the humor and the beguile and all that stuff is really spectacular mm -hmm. and I think that unintentionally some of that erodes in the environment we create for our kids as we start to achieve the things that we've always wanted. You know, that's the irony is, you know, this is all what we wanted for ourselves and we want to share that and we want to be generous with it. And if we don't do it right, we wind up taking some of these experiences out and deprive our kids of some of those tools that, at least for me, have been so important to my own progress. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Steve's honest self-reflection there is quite an example for us all. And he's spot on that raising kids is one of the most important things in our lives. And yet it's one of the things that we receive the least training for. Same with marriage. As my colleague Stan jokes, as my single colleague Stan jokes, do your kids and wife come with instruction manuals? Only if so, only if so, my friend. That's Steve Bonner, ladies and gents, and I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that as always, Alex. And 
And what a, what a treat it is to just hear from these folks and hear from them about their personal lives, their failings, because you can tell. I mean, he, he has some regrets about some of the time he spent and where he spent it. Um, and I don't know many people who don't look back and say, I could have done a thing or two differently. I'm, I'm always uh, a little bit uh, off-put by anybody who says, I didn't do anything wrong and I, I wouldn't do anything different. I go, okay, nice talking with you. And by the way, just on a side note here, um, you, you had this great founder and a dynamic founder, and then you had a, a CEO who helped propel and grow Cancer Treatment Centers of America 30 times its size when he got there. And this is what happens when you have a great founder, a great CEO, a great team. Everybody's on the same page. And Cancer Treatment Centers of America, one of the great, great uh, medical centers and treatment centers in the country uh, because they're focused around a, a mission and value statement that they execute on. And my goodness, we can all learn how to do that in our daily lives. By the way, these things also happen in our story on Home Depot. Uh, yeah, the visionary founder, Bernie Marcus, he was really like the chief salesman. But as we learned when we did our hour on Home Depot, Arthur Blank was the guy who kept the train on the tracks and would sometimes say, Bernie, no, stop selling. And Langone, Ken Langone, he was out there getting the money. You need a team. And we learned that here in our American stories, that leaders know how to lead, but they also know how to follow. This is Lee Habib, Steve Bonner on leadership here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to study history, in fact, the best place in America to study all the things that matter in life, and that's philosophy, and that's the letters and arts, and the classic liberal arts education. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu, their C.S. Lewis course which is online, is terrific. So is their Constitution course, and there's so much more there available to you and your family. In July of 1945, the USS Indianapolis received secret orders to deliver some cargo to Tinian Island in the Pacific. That cargo, well, that was about half of the world's supply of uranium-235 and other critical parts for the atomic bomb Little Boy. The Indianapolis delivered her precious cargo to the Tinian by July 26th, 14 minutes past midnight on July 30th. The Indianapolis was attacked by a Japanese submarine and rolled over 12 minutes later. Of her 1,196 crewmen, 300 went down with the ship. The rest, with very few lifeboats or life jackets, well, they were set adrift. And what they endured, the terrible struggle to survive... That was the basis for a remarkable scene in the movie Jaws. And if you recall, they're out in the, they're out in the ocean, they're hunting for that shark, and Richard Dreyfuss and, and Robert Shaw, who was playing that old sea captain, were comparing wounds, and they were trying to one-up each other in their many brushes with danger. And then came Robert Shaw with the ultimate fish story. 
Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady, just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. Eleven hundred men went into the water. The vessel went down in twelve minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, thirteen footer, you know, you know that when you're in the water, Chief. You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. What we didn't know was our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. <laughs> they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming, and sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. <laughs> You know, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men, the average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland. Baseball player, bosom's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water, it was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura saw us. He swung in low and he saw us to the young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway. He saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, oh, 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out. The sharks took the rest. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. And I don't think anyone could do that like Robert Shaw. And it is the part of the movie that is, I think, the part that holds the whole thing together, that long soliloquy. Here's Edgar Harrell, a young U.S. Marine assigned to the Indianapolis, recounting that disaster. July the 16th, 1945, we picked up a top-secret cargo at Hunter's Point, San Francisco. 
telling us to take it to the forward area. What did we have? No one knew, but we found out later that it was the components of Fat Man and Little Boy and half of all the uranium that America owned at that time. We delivered that to our B-29 base on Tinian Island, a 10-day trip of about 5,300 miles. We delivered our cargo, still didn't know what we had. Uh, and then uh, three days later, now we're going to the Philippines for the main invasion of Japan. We encountered a Jap sub, Commander Hoshimoto fired his spread of six torpedoes, hit us with two, the ship went down in 12 minutes. Well, I'm scared to death. I'm looking out into eternity and I wonder if I'm going to make it. And I tell the Lord many things. I tell him that mom and dad back home, older sister to younger sister, and six younger brothers and a certain brunette that said that she would wait for me. But it was uh, had to be the providence of God that any survivor survived those four and a half, five days swimming with the sharks, of which I did. I was in a group of 80. By the third day at noon, there was only 17 of us. And when I was picked up at the end of four and a half days, there was one other, a Navy lieutenant and myself. So uh, I saw my shipmates disemboweled or the bottom torso torn off or a leg torn off by sharks, sharks, sharks. And then uh, uh, dehydration, boys drinking salt water and going crazy, and your buddy may be your enemy and that he may think you're a Jap, or he may think that you've got a canteen of water hidden in your K-Pak life jacket. He may take out his sheath knife and stab you, and uh, the blood, 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 and the shark, shark, sharks. So your, your buddy may become your enemy. And uh, then uh, uh, 110 degree weather, and you're swimming constantly, bareheaded, and uh, you can imagine uh, the thirst your lips now are parched open, cracking, bleeding, and all that oil off of your clothing and the water and that, and uh, you are desperate for water. And again, that was Edgar Harrell, a young U.S. Marine assigned to the Indianapolis, recounting that story. And my goodness, that was the thing about Robert Shaw's version, how accurate it was. By the way, no need to, to fudge on this one. No need to make it worse. You don't have to. U.S. naval intelligence intercepted a message from the Japanese sub saying that it had sunk an American battleship along the Indianapolis route. But this was ignored as a ruse to lure American rescue forces into an ambush. On August 2, 1945, three and a half days after the sinking, an American aircraft spotted the Indianapolis survivors during a routine patrol. Seeing their fellow Americans attacked by sharks, Another air crew disobeyed orders and landed their seaplane on the open ocean, taxing to try to pick up lone survivors who were at most risk of being attacked. Several hours later, in darkness, the USS Doyle was the first vessel to arrive on the scene. Disregarding the danger of alerting the Japanese, the captain of the Doyle, future Secretary of the Navy, W. Graham Clater, pointed his largest searchlight into the night sky as a beacon for other rescue vessels. To most survivors, seeing that light was the first sign that help had come. The destroyers Hell Madison and Ralph Talbot 
along with three destroyer escorts, joined the rescue effort, which lasted until August 8. Of the Indianapolis's original 1,196-man crew, only 317 remained. Estimates of the number who died from shark attacks range from a few dozen to almost 150. It's impossible to know. But either way, the ordeal of the Indianapolis survivors remains the worst maritime disaster in U.S. naval history. And on this day on history, we memorialize, because you can't celebrate something like this, you can only memorialize the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. And again, as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by Hillsdale College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Stories.